Nehemiah. If you have your Bibles, I hope you do, go ahead and grab those. This is the third week in Nehemiah, and you know we're going to try to get through chapter two, and I can't promise you it's going to happen. And so uh, shifting from New Testament to Old Testament narrative has been uh, interesting for us. But we're in Nehemiah, and Nehemiah, as uh, you're turning there, let me catch you up. Nehemiah is cupbearer to the king, the king of Persia, King Artaxerxes. And uh, he gets word sometime around Thanksgiving, his, his uh, November, December time, he gets word that the walls are still broken down by King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian army that had come through. And now that ruling power is now Persia, and so they've allowed uh, those Israelites to go back to Jerusalem. But how are the walls? How are the people? They're still in ruin. And it breaks Nehemiah's heart. He begins to weep and he begins to pray and begins to plan. And he's given an opportunity somewhere around March or April to approach the king about what can be done in Jerusalem. And so he petitions a plan. He speaks up when when King Artaxerxes calls on him and he says, here's the plan and I need you to fund it. I'm actually going to ask you to, to fit the bill for the whole thing and, and send me and send me with letters and send me with, with the king's forest of wood. I want you to do all of these things and I want to build a house while I'm there and I want you to pay for it. And the king says, okay, sounds like a plan. And so he gets to Jerusalem and now he's going, he's going to assess the damage. So why would we study Nehemiah? As J.I. Packer puts it, Jerusalem is a picture of of Christian churches generally in the modern West. Weakness, delusionment, and the melting away of adherence is the story everywhere. In Asia and Africa and Latin America, the gospel advances and the church grows. But in the Protestant world of Britain, Europe, and North America, the secularizing of community life and the faltering of theologians, church leaders, and ordinary clergy has left the majority of the congregations in a very low state. Abandonment of the historic belief in a holy creator who graciously saved sinners through atonement and new birth is common still as it has been for the past century. And whenever fidelity to the biblical faith ceases, spiritual vitality quickly drains away. Overall, the Western church has shriveled and shrunk. It has ceased to count as a community force. The faith of which God made it trustee is largely unknown to the man in the street. And when known, it is largely ignored. And the godliness that the church once set forth as true humanist is rated in popular culture as a comic, old-fashioned oddity. The church appears as a ruined city like Jerusalem as Nehemiah found it, and a tremendous rebuilding job awaits anyone who still cares about its welfare. You know, that last line, a tremendous rebuilding job awaits anyone who still cares about its welfare. We care about the kingdom work. We care about the church. We care that Christ builds his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We care that there is a church that though sin may have come in and wrecked and ruined and tore down walls and has left it vulnerable, there is much work to do for the king. So Nehemiah chapter 2, 11 through 20. If you have your Bibles, follow along there with me. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. 
Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that I was under me, that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate, and so returned. And the, and the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the walls, the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite, the servant of Geshem the Arab, heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? And then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we, his servants, will rise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. This is God's word. Main thing I want you to see this morning is kingdom work and a reconnaissance mission. There's a reconnaissance mission that's going on here. There's a, a checking out of what really is the damage of the city. And so Nehemiah, when he gets there, he spends three days. And then on one night, he decides to go out in secret to assess the damage. So kingdom work has a careful inspection. Nehemiah went out at night to assess the damage for himself and to count the cost. Nehemiah really needed to know what he was getting himself into before he rallied any troops. Before he got anybody on the same page or even told anybody what he was doing, he said, you know what, I need to go out and I need to see how awful it is myself. And so he goes out and he goes out at night. He gives careful inspection, taking an inventory, going around from gate to gate, from wall to wall, maybe making a list, maybe writing down notes of all the things that are going to be needed but he's taking careful inspection to say, I need to count the cost before I start the mission. This is what Jesus tells his disciples, is it not? That before you come follow me, you better count the cost. In Luke chapter 14, he says this, 25 through 33. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes after me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. I don't know about you, but these are hard words from Jesus. That in comparison to everything else in your life, every relationship that you hold dear in your life, it cannot compare to the commitment that you have to Christ and his kingdom. This is the call that those who want to be a disciple would, would count the cost, that all of these things will be secondary to my love of Christ. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? 
Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. What king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, anyone of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Counting the cost. As we look at a kingdom work, the work that Christ has called us to do, the work that Christ has for his church, for those who are his followers, there's a moment where you have to assess the damage for yourself. Knowing that it's going to take a lot of effort. Grace is not opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning. And as we walk through this Christian life, we are going to have to count the cost. Kingdom work and a careful inspection. Nehemiah went out at night because there were enemies lurking around. He said nothing to anyone because careless leakage of information might bring the work to an, an end even before it started. He didn't say anything, verse 16, and the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing and had not told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Nehemiah knows that at this point, If I say the wrong thing to someone, it could totally derail the mission God has for me. What an interesting thought that even as he's talking about the priest, the Jews, the nobles, the officials, the ones that are going to do the work, he's leery of giving them information too early. And the reason is because most of the opposition that we face in kingdom work comes from within. Even Paul, when he's writing to the Romans, Chapter 16, you might remember this from several months back. He says in verses 17 and 18, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve the Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. As Nehemiah is careful about who he tells information to, we also understand that there are some that, though they may look like they're on the team, they would do everything possible to wreck the vision and the mission of God. Because when change comes, everyone responds selfishly. Well, how is this going to affect me? Well, what if I don't agree with how you're going about doing this? Well, I would have done this differently than you. Well, what if I raise up this concern? Well, what about this? And so before too long, with smooth talk and flattery, there's all kinds of divisions and obstacles that pause the kingdom work that God's called us to do. And so Nehemiah says, you know what, I'm not going to tell anyone until the right time. So Nehemiah, he goes out, he counts the cost, he inspects all the walls, all the gates, he doesn't really tell anyone, and he goes out to see how broken it really is at night. Nehemiah went out at night because sin and brokenness show themselves for what they really are in darkness. I thought this was interesting. Number one, I think he's doing it because he knows if he does this during the day and he walks around or rides around on a camel or an animal or a donkey or whatever he's riding on, if he goes around and he's making notes during the day, then people are going to be like, hey, something's going on here. What are you doing? And then they might start asking questions. But if I was going to go and I was going to inspect actually damage of walls, I think I would go in the daylight so I could see actually how bad they are. But he goes at night. You know, because... If you really want to see how broken the church is, 
Don't look at it when it puts on its Sunday best. Look at it when it walks into the darkness during the week. If, you're only, if you really want to see how broken the church is, it's not, you're not going to see it on Sunday mornings probably. You're not going to see it while people are walking in the light, putting on their best. You're going to see it when they go about their business and as they slip into the dark areas of life. For Nehemiah to really see how bad it was, it wasn't just to see how bad the walls were, but to see how much evil and how much was coming and going at night when they were unguarded. And so Paul would warn believers in Ephesians chapter 5, 8 through 12. For at one time you were in darkness, but now you are the light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good, right, and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful, unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. As Paul writes to this church, he says, listen, you at one time, you walked in darkness. You were broken. You participated in the things that caused the enemy to go and come as he pleases in your life. And you are no longer to walk in darkness. You are to walk in light. You are children of light. So take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them because of your, your kingdom work of working with God in sanctification, letting him change you from the inside out. And so there's this unfruitful work of darkness that often the church participates in that really shows how broken it is. A few weeks ago, we read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 5 through 9, for you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. As Paul writes to the church in Thessalonians, he says, listen, these old way of life, you no longer participate in. Be sober-minded. Be aware that there's a darkness that's trying to, trying to come back into your life. Be sober-minded. Be aware. Be alert. Looking for the return of Christ. Don't walk as the Gentiles do. In 1 John 1, 5-7, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light. And in him, no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Why do I bring up all of this? Because we began with talking about the J.I. Packer quote where it says, the church in some points in the Western culture is broken. And why is it broken? Because the walls are down because there's darkness, because sin has free reign. It can come and go as it wants. And, and though we may put on a good show up front, there are things that happen in secret that we would be super ashamed of if someone went around with a piece of paper at the nighttime of our life and wrote down all the things that we're participating in. Am I right? How broken are we really? Well, if we say we have fellowship while we walk in darkness, 
We lie. And this doesn't mean that we no longer have sin in our life. Because if you say you don't have sin, then you make God out to be a liar. But this is to say that I no longer want to participate in the darkness. I no longer want to live with the walls ruined around me. I no longer want to let Satan have free reign in my life to pull me away from the things of God. I want to walk in the light. I want to practice truth. And when we walk in the light and practice truth, what does it say there? It says we have fellowship with one another. What's interesting to this is that it's communal language in the fact that when the church is broken because of individual sin, it affects the fellowship. When we participate in the darkness, when we participate in in sin, it affects the congregation. It affects all of us. We're all one body. So if you really want to see how broken the church is, take a look at it when when it's not in the light. So let me ask you, when given the opportunity to slip into the shadows of your life, what brokenness do you see? When given the opportunity to slip back into the the dark areas of your life, what brokenness is there? And how do you begin to rebuild? Well, you count the cost to rebuild with God's word. 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Kingdom work must not neglect time in God's word. Why? Because that is what equips you for work. Being in the word of God equips you for the good work. There is no good work without God's word. Simply put, if we neglect God's word, you'll eventually neglect his will. The reason I say this is because there are times when we can be reading God's word, checking it off our our list, sitting sitting in and listening to sermons. Yeah, I've got part of that. I've got part of that. But if it's not teaching you, reproving you, changing you, correcting you, and training you in righteousness, if you're not allowing God's word to to build up the walls of your life, you're neglecting it. And you can't start a kingdom work without first submitting to the word of God. Count the cost by being in God's word. Have you noticed that when There are dark times in your life when sin comes in. Typically what has happened is you've neglected God's word for a while. I haven't been spending time in his word lately. You know, I used to be really dedicated and I used to be devoted and I used to to really spend a lot of time in his word and I just kind of fell away from that and then I I don't know how this happened to me, how I got in this situation. Oftentimes it's because we've neglected God's word that we find ourselves in the situations and circumstances that we're in. Not that we weren't reading it, but maybe we weren't allowing it to correct us. Maybe we weren't allowing it to convict us. So count the cost to rebuild by cutting out accepted sin. Be in God's word and cut out accepted sin. I like what John Owen said. The life, vigor, and comfort of our spiritual life depend much upon the mortification of sin. Mark chapter 9 43 through 50, Jesus says some more alarming things. And he says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands and go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. 
If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes and be thrown into hell where, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if, it, if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Jesus really wants us to know the truth that sin is serious. He's also pointing out the fact that you can't, you can't make yourself stop sinning. There has to be a complete change of Christ in your life. He has got to, he's got to circumcise your heart so that you no longer want to walk in the flesh because you can't cut off enough parts of your body to keep you from sinning, am I right? We need him to cut away the flesh. But the world is selling believers a lie that sin's not as serious as you like to, like to believe. I mean, honestly, the church is oftentimes broken because it's bought into what the culture says is okay. And if you believe that the sin that is in your life is okay, it will keep you in ruins. Though our sins are forgiven, for those who are in Christ, your sins are forgiven, your past, present, future sins, you are completely justified in the sanctifying work of Jesus Christ. He has done that work on your behalf. But sin still separates us. It still causes circumstances to tear down areas of our life. Sin tears down walls. It tears down relationships. It tears down our joy, our purpose. It tears down practical holiness. Our choices and our actions, they often break down and damage the church. They kill our witness and they keep us in ruin. So when we slip back to the darkness, what do our hands do? Often our hands will take what doesn't belong to us when no one's watching. Often our hands will touch things that shouldn't be touched when no one's watching. Often our hands will lash out in violence and hurt others when no one's watching. Our feet in the darkness will run to places it shouldn't run to. We will lose our way, we will wander off the narrow path, and we will follow along on the wide path. In the darkness with our eyes, we will look down on others, judging them, accusing them. In the darkness in our eyes, we will allow ourselves to look at things that we know we shouldn't look at, whether that be in person or on a device. Where do you run to in the darkness? We allow our eyes to focus and be filled with lustful desires. In the darkness, we run to use our tongue in ways that we shouldn't use it. We brag about our achievements while we cut down others in the process. With our mouths, we spread gossip and lies and rumors and slander about other people. You want to see how broken the church is? Don't look at it on a Sunday morning wearing its Sunday best. Look at it throughout the week as it walks in the darkness. Nehemiah went about assessing the damage seeing what really was going on and he saw what a horrible state we're in. He says in verse 17, you see the trouble we're in. Church, let me ask you, do you see the trouble we're in? 
Well, thank the Lord Jesus for him coming because Jesus is the greater Nehemiah. Jesus came and he counted the cost. Before he ever left, he counted the cost. Philippians 2, 6, Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. He counted the cost. He knew exactly what it was going to cost him when he entered humanity. He prayed in the garden, if there's any other way, let this cup pass before me, but not my will, your will be done. He knew from the very beginning the work that had to be done for the salvation of those of us who are lost in darkness and sin. Jesus is the greater Nehemiah. He knows who are about his kingdom work. He knows those who are his, and all people are exposed, whether you're in the light or in the darkness. Hebrews 4, 13, for no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we must give an account. There's not a single one of us in here that can hide in the darkness. He knows. This is the judgment, John 3, 19 through 20. That the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for the deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light, and does not come to the light for the fear that his deeds will be exposed. Jesus came into the world, and he was the light that exposed how dark the world really was. He exposed how dark religion was. He exposed how dark everything was and how depraved humanity really is. And he is the light. But what happened when he came as the light? Men, they pulled back from the light, back into the darkness because they loved the evil deeds. Christ came into the world and we have an opportunity either to draw near to him and let him expose the things in our life that we've hidden in darkness Or we have the opportunity to pull away so we are fearful of what others might see about us, how awful we really are. He calls us to the light to expose what is really in our hearts. Jesus came into a dark world that was broken by sin and he offered the only true way of salvation. Coming to Jesus is to renounce sin. Find salvation in the finished work of Christ on your behalf and be sanctified by a continual renouncing of your sin and a repentance of your sin, allowing him to then produce in you a fruit that you're incapable of producing on yourself. So after Jesus had been around doing his ministry for a while and he turned the water into wine and he went and he flipped tables at the temple and he whipped money changers and people were seeing and watching all the miracles that he was doing. It says this in John chapter 2, 23 through 25. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Many believed in his name, but he did not entrust himself to them. Oh, there's many who would say they believe, but Jesus actually knows their heart. Whether or not they have really entrusted themselves to the finished work of Christ, Jesus did not entrust himself to these men because he knew them. He was aware of their weaknesses, their sin, their hearts. He knew their natures, their dispositions. He knew their intentions, their affections. 
He knew that they loved the world and the darkness more than they loved him. As John Piper says, Jesus knows what is in every heart. And so he can see when someone believes in a way that is not really believing. In other words, Jesus' ability to know every heart perfectly leads to the unsettling truth that some belief is not the kind of belief that obtains fellowship with Jesus and eternal life. Some belief is not saving belief. Have you counted the cost? To follow Jesus. To lose your life so that you will find it. As Jesus says in Matthew 7, 21 through 27, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of the Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many miracles, mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. The natural man has no ability to come to God nor does he even desire to come to him because his heart is hardened and darkened and unregenerate apart from his drawing. Many will want to do the things with God's name attached to them, but he knows their hearts. And so Jesus is the greater Nehemiah because Jesus came on mission to seek and to save the lost and to expose what is broken and dark by his light. Luke 19:10 For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. John 6:44 No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. When Jesus says that no man can come without God's drawing, he's making the statement that total depravity of the sinner is a universal condition. But Christ is the light who came into the darkness. Jesus is the better Nehemiah. Jesus, he comes and he assesses the damage. He sees how broken we really are. He sees what's hidden in darkness. And he offers us newness of life. He's the one that can rebuild because we can't rebuild ourselves. As 1 Peter 2.9 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. Church, have you been called out of darkness? Have you been called to walk in the light as he is in the light? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Oh, I'm thankful that Jesus is the greater Nehemiah. That he was doing a kingdom work that we are incapable of doing on our own. That he can cut away the flesh. That he can circumcise the heart. That he can change us from the inside out so that we no longer desire to walk in the flesh, in sin, in darkness. 
but he gives us newness of life. We are a new creation only in the finished work of Christ. So I implore you today, be reconciled to God. If there's sin and darkness in your life that is accepted, go to war with it. Bow a knee and ask for forgiveness. Confess your sin and he is faithful and just to forgive you. If you have been in sin and caused the fellowship to be hurt, repent. Walk in newness of life. 